0: The following sermon is brought to you by preachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts, for oh, let the words... You know, inspiration tells us through the pen of John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Now there is a self-evident concept arising from that verse. You can't prove all things without some standard, without a governing factor, without some law, without rules. You cannot play baseball. You cannot play tennis. You could not play golf. There is nothing worthwhile that you can do without some standard by which to do it, some set of rules that regulates what you're doing. Just no way to do it. And today in the religious world, a terrible condition has arisen. Of course it's always been that way, but it seems to be intensified at this present time. Such a diversity of teaching that men believe and practice almost everything under the general heading of Christianity. And it's giving the atheistic world plenty of ammunition through which to reject the teaching of the gentleman from Galilee. If ever there was a time when men need to gird up the loins of their minds to stand square upon the eternal truth, it is today. But you know, there are many questions that arise today. Sure, they've come down the pike many, many times but it makes you feel sorry for people you sympathize because the background is such that they have little awareness of the divine source of instruction I want to just ask some questions tonight and hopefully give biblical answers and that possibly will answer a basic question for some in this audience tonight today people are saying you don't have to belong to a church to be saved I mean since we have Christians doing almost everything under almost any kind of condition that you could imagine we're told that uh, Christians fight Christians fight Muslims that's uh, that's foreign to divine revelation that uh, that doesn't happen we're told that Christians give sanction to homosexual marriages and bless such relationships oh well, that that doesn't to happen. And I have people say to me on occasion every atrocity under heaven has been committed in the name of Christianity. i deny the allegation and challenge the alligator. There has never been one violent thing motivated by hatred accomplished in the name of Christ. Never. The all-powerful Son of God endured a lacerated back and spit running down a bruised face and let them nail spikes through his hands and feet and hung suspended between heaven and earth till he died. Praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Friends, there is a divine standard even in such matters as church membership. Must one, though, really Be a member of the church in order to be saved? Do you see what religious error does for the hearts of men? We approach the Lord negatively. Must I attend every service of the church to be saved? That can't even be answered. It's an illegitimate question. It's not related to the positive aspect of Christian commitment. You don't have to attend any service of the church. And if it's a have to instead of a get to, if it's a have to instead of a want to, you can't be saved. You don't love the Lord. You've never committed your life to Him. You have never divested yourself of every other interest and enthroned Him in your heart and life, made Him the object of your thought and your prayers, your desire, and you're not living your life in light of His instruction. There's a standard. We're always asking things in the negative. Why don't we approach this thing of church membership this way? Can one be saved in the church? Well, as far as I know, even people with uh, differing ideas about Christianity would answer in the affirmative, well, yes, you can just say, well then, why pose the question in this negative uh, form? You're on a journey. You come to... Five points. Five different roads lead out. Oh, you've been there before. You know one of those roads leads to your destination. Several guides are here. You've used one of them before. You know that he is reliable, trustworthy. He knows the area. Which which road and which guide would you take? Well, somebody said, Preacher, to ask that question is silly. That's right. It sure is. If indeed you have an interest in arriving at your destination, if you have a purpose in being there and you shouldn't have started from home, if you do not, then you want to take the road that gets there. And since you know which road, well, you know which road you take. Well, since the teaching of the doctrines and commandments of men will result in vain, that's empty, useless, worship without reward, And since all men can follow in the footsteps of the good shepherd, why not just follow the safe course? I mean, just purely from the standpoint of of common sense. This book written down about the third or fourth grade, if you delete the proper names from the Bible, Old and New Testaments, nor the existence nor the pronunciation of them, essential to your salvation. So if you remove the proper names, length of the average word in this book is a little less than five letters. Many of those words are monosyllable, single-syllable words. Paul said when you read it, you can understand it. Verse 4, Ephesians chapter 3. Why not just be positive about it and commit our lives to the understanding of divine revelation and walk according to that instruction? It's a very simple thing, but somehow or other, when it comes to the Lord, we have an idea that He's trying to impose something on us. I mean, he's uh, trying to work my manner of life out of shape and to get me to do something for friend. God isn't even served by men's hands as though he needed anything. Verse 24, Acts chapter 17. God Almighty is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. He is the Eternal One that inhabits eternity. He can do without you. But the fact is... He loves you. And man in transgression is alienated. And he's done everything within his power to reach our hearts, turn us around, enabling us to walk with him and thus ultimately to live with him eternally. The love of God cannot be adequately verbalized. He wants nothing from you except your heart, your love, your fellowship. Well, somebody says, yeah, no, 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 that's for me. The only thing God wants from me is for my good. The sum total of His instruction for my daily living is for my betterment, my happiness, my contentment, my success, my peace. Provides a hope that anchors my soul. Enables me to stand ten feet tall when everything about me is sinking. Puts a soul in my heart. The darkest night That's all he wants. That's why he died. Emmanuel, God with us, under darkened skies, gave his life. All he wants is your love. And that love is made manifest in humble obedience to his will. Can one be saved outside the church? Now, of course, we do not have denominationalism under consideration at all. Not at all. So far as I know, there is no denomination that teaches that you must be a member of that religious group in order to be saved. I don't know of one. So we do not have denominationalism under consideration when we ask this question. Can one be saved outside the church? Now, as we said, I want to ask a number of questions, and I believe that in our study and the solution, the answer to these uh, questions we'll come up with a proper understanding of the basic question, whether or not church membership is essential to salvation. Let me ask you. Can the branch bear fruit apart from the vine? Now, you think about it. The common sense will dictate the immediate answer. The branch severed from the vine? Well, you know it can't bear fruit, but then this is a biblical question. We're not concerned with human opinion. And we're offering no yes and no solutions. Peter said, Sanctify find your hearts, Christ Jesus as Lord, and be ready to give answer to every man a reason for the hope that is within you. Ah, that reason must be established in Holy Writ. And our faith is based upon a verse, saith the Lord. Romans 10, verse 17. And the Lord used that very parable, by the way, over in John chapter 15, you remember, beginning at verse 1. I am the true vine, he said. And my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh it away. Every branch that beareth fruit, he cleanseth it that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the words which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. So neither can ye except you abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same beareth much fruit. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch. They gather them, cast them under the fire, and they are burned. So we understand that Christ is the true vine. His disciples are the branches. That's correct. We learn also in this allegory or parable that uh, the branch cannot bear fruit apart from the vine. Uh, You you say these branches are disciples? Right. You know, the disciples that were called Christians, uh, first in Antioch, you recall, Acts chapter 11, verse 26, they were saved people. How's that? Those disciples were saved people. Well, now, the Scripture says that the Lord adds the saved to the church. The the saved are in the church. That's right. Let's, Let's look at that thing again. Come at it a different way. Paul said that we be no longer children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and craftiness after the wiles of error, but speaking truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, from whom all the body fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supply, according to the working and due measure of each several part, maketh the increase of the body unto the building up of itself in love. 14 through 16 Ephesians chapter 4. Now just a moment. Christ is the head of his body, the church. Right. If I am not a member in the body, I would have no connection with the head. For well, that's self-evident. Just as the branch severed from the vine cannot possibly bear fruit. And these branches are said to be the disciples of the Lord. Ah, but the disciples of the Lord, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, were called Christians. Uh, And they were saved people. But the Lord adds the saved to the church. Naturally, because to remain in a saved state, the only source of sustenance is the the Lord Jesus Christ through this spiritual food without which man cannot live. uh, Matthew 4, at verse 4. If I should sever my finger from my body, how long would that finger live? Wouldn't live at all. Severed from the body. Oh, the branch severed from the vine withers. There's just no way that you could be saved without being in the body because you would have no connection with the head. Oh, there's just no way being a disciple that you could bear fruit if you were severed, cut off from the vine. let's, Let's ask another question. That's not conclusive, probably. Can one be lost and saved at the same time? Well, now, someone said, preacher, no jury on earth would condemn and acquit at the same time. It just just doesn't work that way. He's either innocent or he is guilty. Well, that's what the Lord said. Matthew 12, verse 30. He said, he that is not with me is against me. How do you know the difference, Lord? He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. You see, there is no ground of neutrality. You're either committed to the cause of Christ, laboring for the increase of his kingdom, or you are scattering, destroying what someone else has labored to build. So there is a positive and a negative side to this thing. You're either lost or you're you're saved. Now, the Lord came to seek and to save that which was lost. So then a man reaching the age of accountability is either without God and without hope in the world, Ephesians 2.12. Or he is in Christ, in whom we have our redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins, Ephesians 1 at verse 7. Now it seems to me this is rather conclusive. When you consider the question, can one be saved outside the church? The question, of course, in the first place is framed without adequate understanding of the definition of the English term church. In the world today and we're speaking of men who are amenable to the law of God, reach the age of accountability, their majority, they're able to think abstractly, they know the difference between right and wrong, they are thus responsible for their conduct. When men and women, boys and girls, reach that age of accountability, responsibility, they are either lost or they're saved. You see, there's no middle ground. Uh, There's no no man's land. They are either lost or they are saved. Now, unless Christ Jesus has saved you, then you're lost. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14, at verse 6. I remember he said, except you believe that I am he. You'll die in your sins. John 8, 24. And he just said in verse 21, If you die in your sin, where I am, you cannot come. So among responsible humanity only the two categories, the lost and the saved. Now, did you notice that passage in Ephesians 2, verse 12? Paul here addresses the Gentile element and the church at Ephesus of a time prior to their obedience to the fundamental principles of the gospel. Now, he said, you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, that accurately and adequately describes the condition of every responsible human being who has not yet been cleansed in the blood of Christ, who has not yet been saved by Jesus Christ, our Savior, which is to say, who has not yet obeyed the gospel. Now, why did Christ come into the world in the first place? Well, we noted that. Luke 19.10 came seeking to save that which was lost. What did he say to Peter when Peter acknowledged, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God? Why, he said, upon this rock, this eternal foundation of truth, I'm going to call an assembly out of the lost state into a right relationship with God. How's that? He said, upon this rock I will build my church. What's he saying? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Man in the world is without God and without hope. He came to call men out of the lost state into the saved state. How would you describe that? Ecclesia, The Greek term, Ecclesia. What's the definition? Well, the English term church, however inadequate it may be, has been thus employed church. What's that? You're either lost or you're saved. That is to say, you're either in the world without God and without hope or you've been called out of that state called out, Ecclesia, translated church. Just the two classes. The world and the church. Uh, The lost and the saved. Now, someone should come along and say, well, which church should I join? The, The whole question. Anything you can join that is religious in nature will condemn you. Which savior should you obey? Well, somebody said, Preacher, that's silly, there's just one Savior. Good. Back to the question. You're either in the world without God and without hope, or you have been saved by Jesus Christ. Oh, but if you've been saved by Christ, that means you've been called out of the lost state into the saved state. How do you describe that? Church. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. The Personal possessive pronouns. So there's are just the two classes, the lost and those who've been called into a right relationship with God. So you have the world and the community of the redeemed. Why are these in this particular fellowship redeemed? Because they have been cleansed in the blood of Christ. They are therefore separated from the lost state, added to the saved state. World, church. No way that one could be saved and lost at the same time. And there is no possible way that you could be saved and saved in the lost state. If you've been saved, that means you've been called out of the lost state. Called out, Ecclesia translated, church. Oh, that's the one you read about in the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. Just one. Just one. When we understand what the Lord has done in man's redemption, then it's quite clear to us there's just one church. The rest of the world is lost. You see, if man could have been saved without the Savior, then it would be the height of folly to him for him to have come. And if there were some other means of human redemption, then it is an indictment of the goodness of God that he let that pure, sinless, innocent, guiltless son hanging on that cross cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he didn't say a word. I don't believe you could do that. I don't think I could do that. If I had the power to do something about it, and he had no problem with power, he's omnipotent. But when his son cried out in anguish, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? He did not say a word. Why? Because he loves me. He let him die, because that is the only hope of human redemption. So listen to him when he stands at the door of your heart and knocks. When he whispers to you through the gentle overtures of mercy, hear him. He's here because he loves you. He's pleading with you because you're lost. And he wants to save you. And burdened down in sin, there is no genuine happiness or contentment, no peace of mind and no hope. And he wants to give you all of that. And he can provide it right in the midst of turmoil. Oh, he can make it abundantly yours right in the midst of severe physical persecution. It's a matter of heart committed to the Lord. But let's go again. In seeking the answer to our question, can one be saved uh, without becoming a member of the Lord's church? Let's ask this one. Uh, Can one be saved without being reconciled to God? Now conciliation has to do with peace and harmony and a proper relationship. Man had that relationship at one time, in his forefather Adam. Prior to the transgression of that prohibition placed upon Adam and Eve in beautiful Eden, they walked and talked with the Maker in the perfection of that lovely garden. But then through sin, man is alienated from God. Behold, Jehovah's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear. Oh, but your sins have separated between you and your God. Your iniquities have hid his face from you so that he will not hear. And in light of man's lost estate, he sent his Son to do what? To reconcile, to reconcile man, to bring man back to a conciliatory, harmonious, peaceful relationship with himself. All things are of God who reconciled us unto himself through Christ and committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself not reckoning unto them their trespasses and having committed unto us the apostles the word of reconciliation. We're ambassadors therefore on behalf of Christ as though God were entreating by us We beseech you, be ye reconciled to God. 18 through 20, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What's that? All things are of God, Paul said. And he reconciled these apostles to himself through Christ. And he committed unto them the ministry word of Reconciliation. What is that word of reconciliation? That the Almighty is in His divine representative, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not reckoning unto them their trespasses, and having committed unto us, the apostles, the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors, therefore, on behalf of Christ, as though God were entreating by us. He said, Be ye reconciled to God. I think we understand the value of reconciliation. Without it, there's no way that we could please the Father, that we could have that sacred nearness with Him that would enable us to bask forever in the sunlight of His love in that celestial city. It can't happen until we are reconciled to God. Oh, but where does that take place? How is that done? Let's go back to that passage in Ephesians 2. You remember we noted verse 12, you were at that time separate from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now read right on, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye that were once afar off, are made nigh in the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both one, and break down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that he might create in himself of the two, that's Jew and Gentile, one new man, so making peace, watch it, and might reconcile both in one body unto God through the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Just, just a moment. What's that, Paul? The Lord, in the shedding of his blood, fulfilled the Old Testament law, removed that line of demarcation, that source of enmity, that distinction between Jew and Gentile, and made salvation available to all men. To what end? That he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body. What is that body? Oh, he's the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, Colossians 1.18. For his body's sake, which is the church? Colossians 1.24. And as we noted our text last evening, by the way, God gave Christ to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. As the husband is the head of the wife, so also is Christ the head of the church, being himself the Savior of the body. How I many bodies are there? Just as many as there are heads. But Paul says specifically in verse 4 of Ephesians 4, there is one body. One body, Yes. Where is man, by the efficacious blood of the Son of God, reconciled to the Almighty? In the one body. The church. Then if you can't be saved without being reconciled, you, you couldn't possibly be saved outside the church. That just could not happen. But then, again, can one be saved without becoming a new creature? In 2 Corinthians 5, at verse 17, Paul said if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. A new creature? We know how that happens, don't we? Sure. Forgetting, gestation, birth, new babe. New creature in this world. We are, oh, that's what the Lord said except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 5. He just said in verse 3, except a man be born anew from above, we say again, and that's correct. Except a man be born again, ah, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus, of course, to whom he was speaking, was perplexed. He said... How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, obviously not. Lord didn't have a physical birth under consideration. So an explanation of verse 3 gave verse 5. Verily, verily, always precedes a fundamental, most important principle of truth. Truly, truly, I say unto thee, except one be born of water and of the Spirit. There's no way he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But when does that take place? Well, you become a new creature when you've been born into the family of God. And Paul said in Second Corinthians 5, we noted verse 17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. So you are a new creation in Christ? That's right. Well, well how do you get from without to within Christ? You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 26, Galatians chapter 3. Why, Paul? For as many of you, as have been baptized into Christ, did put on Christ. What's this? You are because you have been. You are what, right, children of God? How? By faith. Where? In Christ. And that's a locative case because, as we'll notice, salvation is in Christ. But why am I a child of God by faith? In Christ, Paul. For as many of you, as have been baptized into Christ did put on Christ. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul said, Don't you know, brethren, that all we who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death, etc. etc. Baptized into Jesus Christ? That's right. Well what does one become when he gets into Christ? Brand new creature. How so? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, and like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. And if you've been planted in the likeness of his death, you shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, so that we should no longer live in bondage to sin. How's that? A new creature? The old man of sin is done away. Where is one a new creature? In Christ. Second Corinthians 5, verse 17. How do you get into Christ? You're baptized into Christ. Oh, by the way, that baptism puts you into the body of Christ the church. For in one spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether bond or free, and were all made to drink of the one spirit. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Somebody says, Preacher, that's Holy Spirit, but unless you brought your breakfast, don't get me started on Holy Spirit baptism. No, sir, Holy Spirit baptism occurred one time for its predetermined, intended purpose. Fell again on the household of Cornelius for a different purpose entirely, to convince the Jewish nation that the Gentiles also were to be recipient of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all that's demonstrated, Acts chapter 11, 15 through 18, verses 9 through 10 of Acts chapter 15, makes it crystal clear. Only the Lord could baptize with the Holy Spirit. But he commissioned his apostles, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You recall that, of course. Verse 19, chapter 28 of Matthew. Go do what? Teach and baptize those whom you taught, teach those whom you've taught, and baptize to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Lord, how could these men baptize these people in the Holy Spirit? They couldn't. No, no. Philip opened his mouth, beginning from this passage, preached unto the eunuch Jesus. As they went on the way, they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, Behold, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Well, you know the story. Baptism in the element of water. Well, yes, but some of it. Just one baptism. How's that? That passage in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. One body and one spirit, even as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all through all and in you all. How many baptisms? Just one. Which one is that? That's the one men can administer. What do men baptize in? Water. That's the way the Lord said the new birth would take place as we noted. So that baptism then puts you into Jesus Christ. That's right. Where you're a new creature, that's true. Or oh, that same act puts you into the body of Christ, naturally, because you're either lost or you're saved. To be a new creature, you'd have to be saved. Oh, well, then you'll have to be in the church. It just cannot be done any other way. Could one be saved without being sanctified? Follow after peace with all men and the sanctification without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 14. That's conclusive, isn't it? Without sanctification, you cannot see the Lord. Whom do we find described with the term sanctified in Scripture? Well, numerous passages, but if you want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He wrote, of course, to the church of God, even the sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified? Yeah. Cleansed from sin. Set apart. Dedicated exclusively to the accomplishment of the will of God. Separated from things profane dedicated to the service of the Almighty, sanctified. Where does that take place? In the church. First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. But then, hastily, hey, eh, can one be saved out of Christ? Now you think about it for a moment. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Where are all spiritual blessings enjoyed? Only in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3. Verse 7 says, in whom we have our redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. The witness is this, that God hath given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. First John 5, verse 11. How many soever be the promises of God in him is the yea. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 20. And a man is in Christ is a new creature, we noted. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Oh, but notice 2 Timothy the two ten. For I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Where is salvation located in Christ? Where else? Nowhere. Salvation is only located in Jesus Christ. But then, in closing, could one be saved without the blood of Christ? You think about it. Mm-mm-mm. Without shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 9, verse 22. Oh, but somebody says they shed the blood of multiplied millions of animals. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 10, 4. Can't be saved without the shedding of blood. That's right. Nine twenty two. The blood of animals cannot redeem our souls from the burden, the guilt, the stain of sin. That's correct. Hebrews 10, 4. Then we're talking about the shed blood of the innocent Son of God. That's right. Where did his blood go? What did he do with it? I mean, essentially, what is involved in the shedding of the blood of the Son of God? Where a testament is. There must of necessity be the death of him that made it. For a testament is a force where there hath been death. For it doth never avail, while he that made it liveth. Hebrews 9, 16 and 17. Do you remember when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper? Matthew 26, 26 through 28. Didn't he break the bread and say, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you? And in like manner after the supper he took the cup, and he said, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now Paul said, Though it be but a man's covenant, yet when it hath been confirmed, no man maketh it void or addeth thereto. Galatians 3 at verse 15. We understand about wills, testaments, covenants. This is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. Sealed, validated by his blood, probated by the divinely appointed emissary as assigned that very task. Ten days after his ascension, this will was declared to be the all-sufficient, miraculously revealed, totally authoritative revelation of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And for the first time, as recorded in the second chapter of the book of Acts, The conditions of salvation for alien sinners revealed, clearly made known. Now, friends, when that document is determined to be legal, valid, it can't be altered, added to, diminished from, nor substituted for. The only way that you or I can receive any spiritual benefit from the heritage left by the Lord is through the will. That's his connection with humanity today, his will. That's why it said that faith cometh of hearing, hearing with the word of God. I like the American standard on that. When you contrast the system of works with the system of faith, that is uh, the letter with the, the gospel. So then belief cometh of hearing, and hearing with the word of Christ. That's right. God, having of olden times spoken unto the fathers and the prophets in diverse portions and in diverse manners, hath at the end of these days spoken unto us through his Son. Authority in religion in the Christian age comes through Jesus Christ. You can't be saved without his blood. And the only way you can apply the benefits of the cleansing power of his blood is to obey the simple condition stipulated in the covenant. That's the way it's done. That's why the scripture says he's the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Hebrews 5, 9. That's why Paul said he'll come with his holy angels and flaming fire, rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel, who shall suffer punishment, even eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 7 through nine, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. He'll render vengeance to them that know not God. That's right. Oh, but someone says, I know that he is. He's the sovereign creator and sustainer of this material universe, friend. Only a fool would deny that. Psalm 14, 1. It's not what he's talking about. Well, then how may I know him to escape that vengeance? Nobody knows anything about it except what he tells us. First John 2, verses 3 and 4. Hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, while he keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth isn't in him. I didn't say that. No, the apostle of love said that, and I quoted it, and it is eternally true and the basis of your judgment and mine in the final analysis. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. 1 John 5, verse 3. Well, think about it. The church is the house of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. You recall what ancient Israel did in the tenth plague prior to their deliverance from ancient Egypt? They put the blood of the paschal lamb on the lentils and the doorposts, of the houses where they were. And God told them in Exodus 12, 23 and 24, stay in that house. And so they did. God said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. I will not permit the avenger to enter into the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. That thou mayest know how men ought to behave themselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And Christ is the door. How's that John chapter ten, verse nine? I'm the door. Friend the blood is on the door. There is safety in the house. Death lurks outside.